Hi, welcome to On The Mic, outspoken LGBTQ storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. Once a month, people from all over Chicago gather at Sidetrack, one of the city's longest running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQ people. Now, we're going back into the archives, six years of archives, to bring the stories to you. For our first episode, I'd like to introduce you to some of the outspoken team. You'll hear stories from Kim Hunt, Art Johnston, and Archie Jamjun. Let's get started. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Each storyteller at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. Our very first story comes from co-host Kim Hunt. Kim must be the busiest person on the planet. In addition to co-hosting Outspoken every month, she's the executive director of the Pride Action Tank with the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. Kim is the former executive director of Affinity Community Services, a social justice organization that works with and on behalf of black LGBTQ people and queer youth. She's also on the planning committee for the Out at Chicago History Museum program series and the advisory council for Willie's Warriors, a leadership development program for black women. Her incredible resume goes on forever, but let's just say she's very young and has already been inducted into the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame. Here's the first of her many outspoken stories, recorded in August 2014. A seasoned uh, executive in our community, social, a social justice agitator, uh, and Kim L. Hunt is the executive director. Thank you for applying no pressure. <laughs> Please welcome Kim L. Hunt. Wow. Thank you for the love. I really appreciate that. Uh, but don't expect too much. <laughs> Last month, I stepped into the Cook County Office of Vital Records for the third time in my lifetime to get a piece of paper that would validate one of the most important relationships in my life. The first time was nearly 30 years ago. Did you hear that? <laughs> 30 years ago. It's been a minute. Uh, I was a 20-something-year-old bride-to-be about to marry uh, my college sweetheart. The second time was two years before um, that moment a month ago when my partner and I got a civil union. Between the first and the second time, I said very publicly that I would never get married again. <laughs> and Jim Bennett, who was speaking after me, thank God, witnessed this one time when we were on a panel together that he invited me to at a very prestigious law firm. And I don't think that's what they planned to hear about marriage. <laughs> Nonetheless, I met it at the time. So I got married that first time because I was following the dreams of my mother and my grandmother and other women in my family who saw marriage as just a natural part of the progression of their lives. And since I was in college, they thought that I had a better chance than, than they'd had to get a really good pick. <laughs> Pretty good. But I had two generations of women ahead of me who had been married multiple times. My grandmother had been married at least seven times. 
to three different men. <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> so, she stayed married to her first husband, who I didn't know, for just a couple of years. And then she was married to her third husband, who I knew as my grandfather, for the longest period of time. They were married until the day he had a heart attack, well into the advanced stages of her Alzheimer's, and more than 20 years after they'd first said, I do. But it was that middle husband who was the doozy. And that was my mother's father. And I honestly think that he was the love of my grandmother's life. My mother used to tell stories of their breakups and their makeups, which they had a lot of, because my grandmother's best friend was a lawyer. And every time she got mad at my grandfather, she would divorce him. <laughs> and he would pay for it. <laughs> this happened multiple times. They'd remarry, they'd get divorced, they'd remarry, they'd get divorced. It happened so many times that my mother just lost count. But I think that back and forth really had a big impact on her because by the time I graduated from college, she had been married four times to four different men. So, but the funny thing is, at our family gatherings, after she decided that she was wedded to single life, all the exes and their extended families were there. And there were no incidents. It was funny as hell. <laughs> it was great. So as you can see, marriage is kind of a thing in my family. So as I walked into the Vital Records office with my fiance about 30 years ago, part of me felt like I was going to the guillotine, but part of me felt like I was determined to break the cycle, to be the person who married just once, even if it didn't last until death do us part. So I was married to a wonderful man, actually, and we're still good friends, who I met in college. He was an engineer, good catch, good provider. We were married for 10 years. We had uh, two children together. We adopted my stepbrother, who was 10 at the time. We had the house, we had the two-car garage, we had the two cats, we did the vacations with friends, we did all of that. And I knew that when my husband was sick, or we made major life decisions, or his family just didn't like the way we were raising our kids, I wasn't gonna be silenced, I wasn't gonna disappear, I wasn't gonna be invisible, because we were a unit. But 10 years in, I had to acknowledge something that is the old women say in the church, the motherboard, for those of you who know what that is. <laughs> something was not right in my soul. And I started looking at myself with new eyes when I turned 30, or a little into 30. And I knew that I had to release my husband and myself because I knew that I was attracted to women, but I had tamped down those feelings to do the right thing for the sake of my mother. So my husband and I got divorced, which happens in a court, by the way, which shows that this is a contractual agreement and not just a religious thing. And I plunged into the LGBT world at just the right time. Because at my job, my division leader was an openly gay man. And in my unit, I was surrounded by his 
beautiful, cute, intelligent gay new hires. <laughs> they helped me through those really rough emotional times after my divorce and through the relationship with my first girlfriend. And they also had days of beauty with my daughters as they babysat them. And I called them my gay mafia. <laughs> and one day a member of the gay mafia came over to me to deliver the message that would lead to my second and third trip to the vital records office. He came back from a meeting one day, just grinning, just happy with himself and made a beeline right to me. And he said, I know someone who likes you. <laughs> and he paused for effect. And I said, Mary DeBacher. And he said, damn. <laughs> he wasn't expecting me to get it right away. But I had been thinking about Mary for a couple of days, and this is why. This was the Monday after the Pride Parade, and my vice president had invited her to march with us in the parade. In fact, we held the CTA banner together. I know. <laughs> We'd met before, but at the time, we were both in relationships. When we met this time at the parade, we were both free. But despite knowing that, we parted ways after the parade, because we're not good daters. <laughs> but that Monday, she asked me out. We had a wonderful time. And when it ended, we looked at our calendars. We were very low key. We had just been in relationships neither one of us wanted to be in. We were very happy to be out of them. So we looked at the calendars, pushing this off a little while. We said, we'll see each other in two weeks. We saw each other the next day. And every, almost every day for the last 15 years. <laughs> But I do want to point out, there was no U-Haul in our second date. <laughs> that came a year later. <laughs> so I loved and adored Mary from the beginning, but didn't think we'd be married. Not because I didn't think it was going to be possible one day, but because my hope for the LGBT community has always been that we would push society to accept all kinds of family structures rather than replicate heteronormative models. But, <laughs> and there's always a but. But then Mary and I had this situation a few years ago. Her insurance changed. And she, right now, <laughs> and she'd read in that pile of papers that same-sex couples needed to go as far as the law would allow in terms of establishing their relationship, which meant having a civil union for us. Let me say again, love Mary the pieces, she loves me, but a civil union felt like a thing. And you know my history. <laughs> but once you hit 50, <laughs> You have a much lower tolerance for ambiguity, <laughs> and you want to make sure you're going to be comfortable for the rest of your life. <gasps> so we made that second trip, or I made that second trip, to the vital records department just to be sure. And we were nervous. We felt like people were staring at us because we'd missed the rush. So, because <laughs> the law went into effect in 2011. And this was 2012, so we felt like just very lonely and like the world was looking at us. But we pushed through. And the next day, my youngest daughter, two of her friends, and one of our friends met us at marriage court, which let me tell you, 
It is a windowless cavern in the basement of the county building. <laughs> and the marriages or civil, in that case, the civil unions took place in whatever office was available with whatever ju judge was assigned to marriage court that day. So it was very romantic. <laughs> I cried anyway. And I posted pictures on Facebook. We had a lovely lunch. Then we went home. We walked the dog. We popped ourselves in front of the TV. Congratulations started rolling in. And I wondered, what have we really done to be congratulated for? At that point, we'd been together for 13 years. <laughs> By the way, Mary took those papers with the civil union certificate to the HR department a couple of days later and found out we didn't really have to have a civil union. <laughs> She could have just signed me up for her insurance like she'd done the last 10 years, but we didn't know. She declined my offer for an annulment. <laughs> so fast forward to 2013, um, when initially after the spring session, the marriage bill wasn't called to vote, and there was a lot of pain in our community and among our allies. And I was actually you know, bummed. I felt a sense of loss, even though I'd never planned to get married again, um, because I felt like, how dare we be a, denied such a basic right, whether any of us chose to exercise it or not. And I'd heard constituents of affinity over the years talk about being ignored when their partners were sick or died, about the devastation that occurs when you aren't able to share benefits, and just about being, partners being ignored. And, and to, to me and to affinity, marriage is an economic justice issue. But it's also an issue of validation, of saying my family is just as important as yours. So I was in the fight for marriage as executive director of affinity, but it was also very personal. Mary and I have been pretty confident in these last 15 years that if anything should happen to her before her father, a starch Roman Catholic who believes in all that Catholic stuff, if she, anything happened to her before he died, I would be out of it. I would not, uh, I don't think he would disown me because he actually loves me. He does not love our relationship. So, um, and we know that families flip out sometimes um, after folks die. So once marriage was law in Illinois, early in the year, I marked a date on the calendar and forgot about it. And when we flipped the calendar page to July, the first thing I said was, who's getting married this month? <laughs> <laughs> then I recognized my handwriting. <laughs> and we had to sync our calendars because that date wasn't going to work, so we picked another date. <laughs> And this time when we went to vital rec the vital records office, we had lots of company. There were at least six other same-sex couples in line, and the heterosexuals were congratulating all of us. So as we were wrapping up the paperwork to convert our civil union to a marriage, we snapped a selfie, again posted it to Facebook, with a status update that says, nothing says I love you like a quick conversion from a civil union to a marriage, over lunch, and then going back to work. <laughs> so that's what happens when you've been together 15 years. But you also start to think alike. So when we were asked what format we wanted our marriage license to be printed in, 
we both said, wallet size. Because <laughs> we're not taking any chances. Thank you. For Kim Hunt. Co-host Art Johnston used to be arrested in gay bar raids, and he did something about it. Art has been a Chicago gay rights activist for decades. He marshaled thousands in the June 1977 march against Anita Bryant in downtown Chicago. He was part of the Gang of Four, who led a protest at Daly Plaza and lobbied Chicago City Hall to pass the Human Rights Ordinance. He's a co-founder of the civil rights organization Equality Illinois, which last year helped pass the new education bill requiring LGBTQ history to be taught in public schools. Art opened Sidetrack 38 years ago in 1982, which became a place where gays could meet to drink but also organize and raise money for gay causes. And it's where we record this show. Here's Art's first story at Outspoken, recorded in November 2014. Art Johnston came to Chicago for one year in 1972 for grad school, and he never left. He met his partner, Pepe, um, in 1973 at a gay bar. Please give a warm welcome to Art Johnston. We were sitting forward in our chairs, leaning in, trying to hear what was being said as the Chicago aldermen were debating our lives. We were in the uh, upper gallery of the Chicago City Council, and along with hundreds of other gays and lesbians, we had come hopeful to our seat of government. The question being debated was, should it continue to be lawful to fire people simply because they're gay or lesbian? In other words, should it be okay to use sexual orientation to deny people an apartment, a job, a public accommodation, or access to credit transactions? This was July of 1986. The legislation being debated had been introduced originally in 1979 by then Alderman Cliff Kelly, who went on to have and still does have a very influential career in Chicago black radio. But it had never been brought to a committee vote. It had never been brought to a vote of any kind. And it was time. So. We worked to try to get this to come to a vote. That meant rallies and meetings and all those kinds of things you do to try to convince your government to do its job. So we were there. We were listening. And the floor debate was less than inspirational. Now, we had been told, all of us who had worked on this, that the chances of passage were very slim. But we knew the mayor. Mayor Harold Washington had reached out to our community, something no mayor had ever done. And we were sure that no matter what we'd been told, that at the end of that council meeting, somehow the mayor would pull out the votes we needed and we would win. So we listened. 
and there were hours of other city council business before we got to, to us. And the debate went on. And the de facto leader of our side was the alderman of this ward, the 44th ward, whose name was Bernie Hansen. Bernie had recently been elected alderman before he had served as the head of streets and sanitation for the 44th ward. And we learned quickly that other aldermen viewed him as the leader because they assumed that almost all of us lived between Halstead Street and the lake. And maybe a few somewhere up in that Andersonville place. But basically, they were sure we're all here. And many aldermen, as we found out later on, believed they had no gay people living in their wards. <laughs> so the debate went on. And the summation for our side by our leader, Alderman Hansen, was the inspirational. The rest of you Alderman don't know these people. I know gay people. And let me tell you, they are clean. <laughs> now, we didn't know a lot about politics, but somehow that didn't seem to us to be a very much of a winning argument. So the vote was taken. Chicago City Council votes always go ward by ward, one through 50. It's always a, a, it's, it's a verbal vote. So the numbers are in. Yes, 18. No, 30. Not voting, two. An unwanted slap in the face. And those extra votes that we thought somehow would come along didn't come along. We filed out and down the stairs, almost physically choking on our disappointment. And then a couple of voices from off on one side started singing, we are a gentle, angry people. It's an old Universalist Unitarian hymn. And I fucking hate it. <laughs> it's too much about gentle and not enough about angry. And I knew right then that if I ever had any say in anything, I would do whatever I could to make sure we never sang that song again. I, it was a visceral reaction and happily, a couple of angrier, louder voices started saying, we shall overcome, and that was just amazing. All of the halls of City Hall, all of the byways of City Hall were filled with, frankly, proud singing, and people suddenly, their heads stood up a little higher, and they walked out. Alderman Kathy Osterman, 40, 48th Ward, who was one of the folks who was working on this, wanted to work on this, grabbed me through the crowd and said, where are you going? I said, home? She said, no, you're not. We have work to do. Now, I couldn't imagine what work there was to be done. I wanted, frankly, I wanted to go home and, and just kind of nurse my sorrows and, and be angry. She grabbed me and said, we're going to my office. We went to her office, and she said, Art, we're going to analyze the vote. I didn't have a clue what she was talking about. What do you mean we're going to analyze the vote? She said, all right, let's go. Ward 1, uh, what are the, where is it? Well, and at that time, World One was essentially downtown. It was the loop. Later on in the scandal, they flipped it in 42. But at that point, it was the loop. She said, okay, uh, who's the alderman? I said, Fred Rohde. Good. 
How did he vote today? No. Okay, so far, fine. So, all right, what's his religion? I was really taken aback. So I started mumbling, as we often do when we don't know what else to do. I said, well, all right, let's see. He's, uh, uh, he's Italian. He's rumored to be the mobs guy in the city council. His father was uh, named Bruno the Bomber for his work with Al Capone. We had done some research. I mean, we were not completely naive. And so, and, and he is Italian, so I'm guessing he's Catholic, Roman Catholic. And Kathy said, good, let's go, move on, let's go. And second ward, Bobby Rush, Black Panthers, one of the few blacks who supported a lot of, we're moving along, moving along, moving. I'm feeling good about the stuff I know, the stuff I don't know. But through it all, I am really frustrated because I can't figure out what she's doing. Now, I was a school teacher, and I thought I was good at it, or I tried to be, and I always thought I could figure shit out. I had no clue what she was doing. And so in the middle of being frustrated with not knowing the answers, I couldn't figure out why we were doing it in the first place, which made me even more fucking pissed off, because I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't. All right. And at one point, Kathy, who never had an unhappy, she wore giant hats and big smiles. And Kathy never had an angry word for anybody ever, anytime. And she said, Art, come on, move it. What are you doing? You gotta do better than this. She said, Art, politics is about one thing, and that's counting. And if you can't count, stop it right now. Don't waste my time or your time or anybody else's time. Get out of this business before you start. If you can't count, Stop it. So now, of course, I'm feeling bad. I'm, uh, we get to the end of all of this. So add it up, add it up, add it up. Add, so I add it all up. So of the 18 yes votes, there were 11 Protestants, one Jew, four people of indeterminate religion, and two lapsed Catholic, Roman Catholics. Of the 30 no votes, 28 were Roman Catholic. Well, even I eventually figure out what we're doing. <laughs> so I said, Kathy, uh, I mean, Alderman Osterman, she said, no, it's Kathy, it's okay, come on, what? Said, we have a Catholic problem. Said, yes, yes, we have a Catholic problem. We've got to figure, if we don't figure this out, we're getting nowhere. Okay, so we have a Roman Catholic problem. So we then find out that the night before the meeting, Cardinal Bernadine had called Ed Burke, then as now the most powerful alderman, and then as now the leader of Roman Catholicism in city government. We find out that Bernadine had called him and asked him to make sure it failed. So we know there's a lot of stuff to figure out. So we begin to figure all this out. What do you do, what do you do, what do you do? And we come up with a number of things, and a number of ideas and how to move forward. And then came the nuns. Fortunately, one of the folks who was taking a leadership role in all this work was a fellow named Rick Garcia, who was then a Catholic brother. And Rick knew many nuns. Now, I didn't know much about nuns. I was a Protestant kid at a time when Protestants were not allowed in Catholic churches 
and Catholics were not allowed in Protestant churches. I grew up in a factory town near Buffalo, New York, which was made up of uh, folks who had just moved to the United States, mostly first generation, Italian, Polish primarily, and then a few hillbillies like us who had come up from the mountains of Pennsylvania because there were jobs. It was a factory town. It was like Gary, Indiana. There, was, there were always jobs. And the, the whole Catholic world was this foreign thing to me. And all I knew was, that, well, I knew a couple things, but the one thing I knew was that on Wednesdays, when the rest of us had to stay in school until 4 o'clock, the Catholics got out at 3 o'clock, and I resented it. <laughs> they all got to go to instruction. I didn't know what instruction meant. I had no idea, but I didn't like the fact that they could get an hour early just because they were Catholic. Didn't, didn't like it. I also didn't know a damn thing about nuns. So I had seen them kind of these large, all in black, kind of moving. You could never see the feet, so it was just sort of moving along. <laughs> and I would see them outside of the Italian Catholic Church, and then I would also see them outside of the Polish Catholic Church, because, of course, those did not mix either. I didn't really understand all that. But, as I say, I really didn't know much about nuns. I mean, I'd heard sort of little horror stories, and the Catholic kids would always say, yeah, you think it's great that we get out of You don't know what we go through, because we have to deal with those nuns, and those nuns are... Okay, okay, okay. The other thing I knew about Catholic stuff was that the Italian boys always turned me on, okay? <laughs> uh, all Polish boys, please forgive me, but I just, I just had this thing for those, Catholic, for those Italian boys, you know? We would go to grade school together, and suddenly, like in ninth grade, in gym class, suddenly these boys have got like hair in their armpits, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm looking, oh, what, what happened to you over the summertime? How the hell did that happen? And of course, you know, this is a factory town. I was around traditional, old-fashioned kind of factory worker men, and the idea of, of body hair was just, wow. You know, I needlessly didn't sleep very much those nights when I was <laughs> thinking about the Catholic, the Italian boys. So, Again, I didn't know much about, I didn't really didn't know much about nuns. What I found out was that Chicago was blessed to have many of the nuns who had led the civil rights work in the American South living in Chicago. And if you have a chance, if you've not done it, even if you've done, do it again, when you get a chance, every year, public television plays eyes on the prize. Watch it. Watch it. You will always learn something. One of the things I learned early on was that most of the famous marches, the Selma, the, all of those were led by Catholic nuns for the very practical reason that there were less chances of the fire hoses and the dogs being put on the nuns. And those nuns were always willing to go first. I didn't know any of those things. And many of those nuns had settled in Chicago and were running women's shelters. So Rick Garcia, as a Catholic brother, who'd been doing gay rights work within the Catholic Church for a long time, knew many of these nuns and reached out to the nuns. Now, there were many pieces of our Catholic strategy. It involved also getting on board all the mainstream Protestant groups and, and, uh, and the Episcopal bishops and the Meth all these things, you know. But we reached out, and particularly there was a wonderful nun who's still around, and she ran a group with a very modest name, Chicago Catholic Women. 
which had, hid the fact that they were all crazy, wonderful radicals. They would lead marches on the, on the cathedral on Mother's Day against the hierarchy, and they were great. And amongst those nuns, they were all willing and able to help us. So when we had our hearings before the city council, the nuns would come in the hearings. The only problem we had was that this is post-Vatican II, which meant that nuns weren't required to wear habits. And we were fixated on the best possible result of the hearings, so we wanted the nuns to look like nuns. <laughs> so I remember Rick used to always carry a veil in his, in his uh, and I remember the nuns more than once saying, guys, we'll do anything for you, but that veil came off 10 years ago. It's not going back on. Okay, fine. But could you at least park your motorcycle a couple of blocks away from City Hall? Because <laughs> pro-choice nuns on motorcycles is probably not the image we wanted to connect to in the automatic brain. All right. So these nuns were astonishingly effective. Uh, I remember so well when the, the leader, um, Sister Donna Quinn, when the first, uh, and behind city council, behind the podium, there's a sort of a meeting area. So Kathy Ostman would go back there and she would call out aldermen who would then come back and there would be Sister Donna. Now Ed Burke, as the leading Catholic of the universe, uh, knew Sister Donna, and he came back, and he's looking at Kathy, and looking at Rick, and looking at Sister Donna, and he's almost physically scratching his head, like, what the hell is this? And she said, Eddie, now first of all, you don't call Alderman Burke Eddie, okay? She said, Eddie, Eddie, and she, and she grabbed his cheek, she said, Eddie, I need your help. I need you to vote for this gay bill, you know, Eddie? And I need you to get some people to help us, so I won't you help us out? Like, can't you, like, trade a bridge or something? Isn't that what you do? Can't you like, you know, maybe a statue? I mean, can't you get us some votes? And Alderman Burke smiled. Uh, what we did not know at the time was that he had a gay brother who is still a, a who's not out, but is still a, a representative in Springfield. We also did not know that eventually Ed Burke wanted to run for mayor and so he began to view us as a possible constituency and eventually became, uh, came on our side. I, I remember the days he came into sidetrack. But that was to come. So we started working on other aldermen who said, well, you know, I, I can't. I'm Catholic. It's a Catholic ward. So we would seek out a nun from the same order who had taught the alderman when he was a child. I mean, everything you could imagine, these were the most perfect, wonderful meetings you could possibly, possibly imagine. And if they had not themselves been, we would find out what order of nuns was teaching their children, or what order of nuns uh, had worked in their ward. And eventually the aldermen started falling one by one by one. And the nuns to a person would say, wait a minute, when the aldermen would talk about the cardinal and, uh, and uh, nuns would say, uh, I'm the church too. I'm the church too. 
And eventually, I learned that the nuns had a lot of good things to say and do. Because I'll tell you, when I was a kid growing up in this factory town, one thing I was sure of was that there was nothing for me to learn from a nun, because I didn't understand what these foreign creatures were. I had no interest. I was sure there was nothing for me in that universe, particularly if I could get the Italian boys away from the nuns. I didn't. <laughs> All right, so the nuns do their work. We go ward by ward by ward. Some wards we had to do with other kinds of things, but this was a, we, and we had to vote on it again and again and again. Each time we got closer, each time we got closer, we took to just saying to the alderman, you want to get rid of us? So why don't we get rid of us? Just pass it. You'll never have to see us again. But until you do, we're not going away. We're not going away. We're not going away from your office. We're not going away from city council meetings. We're just not going away. The nuns did their work. The nuns did their work amazingly well. Finally, December 21st, 1989. And so much happened in the meantime. Harold Washington died and oh my God, all kinds of things, all kinds of things. But December 21st, 1989, we vote. So many stories but we get 27 votes. You need 25. I learned from Kathy, as we worked for those two years, no matter what kind of a good idea somebody brought us, and oh, we had ideas. You know, I remember a group brought us the idea, we're going to, this was the night games that just started at Wrigley Field. We're going to rent a blimp. <laughs> we're going to fly it over Wrigley Field night games, and it's gonna flash gay rights now. We had almost no money <laughs> to work with. It sounded like a great idea until somebody said, uh, what vote specifically is that going to bring us toward 26? Uh, because the people at Wrigley Field are mostly suburbanites who don't vote in the city. Uh, went down the list and don't you think that they will just be pissed off at the distraction? So we had a lot of wonderful ideas, but the most effective were the nuns. December 21st, 1989, we passed with 27 votes. Amazing, 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 amazing. And frankly, those of us working on it, our heads had grown just a little bit. Because during those two years, we had been told literally weekly, a political reporter, one or another, would come to us and say, what are you guys doing? This is Chicago. Where do you think you are? This is not San Francisco. This will never pass. You're never going to pass something like this in Chicago. So it was a very, very, very sweet victory. For the next week after that, I got in my car every night and went and drove all over the city of Chicago, and I would always end up on the Skyway. Stop, rolled on my window, and I would look up my window and say, you can't fire gay people anymore. We were very happy. It was an amazing victory, and that's when we started finally to have out gay professionals. Up to that point, the people who were out were folks like us who worked in bars. You know, folks like this handsome man over here who's been, we've been together for 40-something years. And, and I pick on the gay lawyers a lot and ask them where they were at a certain time, but let me tell you, 
what the gay lawyers, the gay professionals have brought to our movement is astonishing. And that happened because they didn't have to any longer worry about losing their jobs. All right, so here we go. It's great. It's a new world. We feel like gay rights is over. It's done. We don't think anything about domestic power. We don't think none of that. That stuff is so fucking unbelievable. That's like a walk on the moon. We didn't even think about any of that stuff. We thought it was done. All right. We get invited to a Christmas party put on by Chicago Catholic women. We go to this party upstairs above Ann Sather's, which was the de facto you know, meeting area for all of us back then. And I go in, there's two guys, and all of the, now I've learned by now to recognize what a retired nun looks like, <laughs> okay? There's always a little cross, usually a pale blue. It's the shoes. I finally learned to be, I mean it, I, I mean it. I think I finally learned to get my gay card because I learned how to look at women's shoes. And the nuns all wore the most wonderful, sensible shoes. So we're there, and frankly, we're still feeling like we did it. Obviously, we didn't do it by ourselves, but we did this thing. We sit down, and I start to listen to the nuns talking. And next to me is a little tiny, you know how it seems that women seem to shrink? It seemed like she could barely occupy the seat, and she's talking to a nun across the table. Sister Julia, how are you? Have you seen Sister Marianne lately? No. I haven't seen her since we were arrested together at the Supreme Court two years ago. <laughs> but I think she's still in jail in Louisville. <laughs> and I start listening, and my head gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I realize that these women were the true heroes. And why don't we know these stories? We don't know them because nuns don't self-promote. And in addition to the incredible, what I view as progress for our community, I personally realized that I had a lot to learn from nuns. And it was a great and wonderful experience. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you. We like to take a minute at Outspoken to remind ourselves that we are not a modern aberration. LGBTQI folks have existed for thousands of years. Not so long ago, Pearl Hart was defending Ladies of the Evening in Chicago's Morals Court in the 1930s. Before Hart, 90% of the women were found guilty. Hart reversed it, helping 90% of them go free. At one point, Pearl Hart was the only female lawyer in Chicago specializing in criminal law, and she was doing it while sharing a home with two women, all in a polyamorous relationship for decades. Pearl Hart later defended leftists during the Cold War and saved immigrants from deportation. She co-founded the National Lawyers Guild. She was president of the Women's Bar Association of Illinois. And she worked with another famous Chicago lesbian, Jane Addams. Hart defended gay men arrested in bars and tea rooms for decades, earning her the nickname the Guardian Angel of Chicago's gay community. Back then, police were raiding gay bars and arresting homosexuals. So Pearl Hart wrote up a pamphlet called Your Legal Rights in order to teach gay people how to fight back. 
It was distributed through the Mattachine Society, the first successful American gay rights group. It was then at a Mattachine meeting where Pearl Hart met lesbian pulp novelist Valerie Taylor, and they fell in love. And what a power couple. Valerie Taylor wrote books like Whisper Their Love and A World Without Men. Wouldn't that be nice? Many people on these raids lost their jobs and families. So Pearl Hart, Valerie Taylor, and a few others launched the Mattachine Midwest to take on the mistreatment. In Valerie's apartment, they wrote a newsletter for gay people reporting dangerous cruising areas and your legal rights if you're arrested. She took on corrupt cops and helped Chicago's gay community for years. If you'd like to learn more about Pearl Hart, we have an incredible LGBTQ library and archive here in Chicago named in her honor, the Gerber Hart. Check out gerberhart.org. Archie Jamjun curates the show every month. He's a storytelling queen. Archie has won the Moth Grand Slam, Chicago's Biggest Liar, and he's been featured on the Risk podcast. He's also written for the literary arts journal, the Coachella Review, Story Club Magazine, Drinkers with Writing Problems, and The Rumpus. This is Archie's second story at Outspoken, recorded in August 2015. Come on up, Archie. I was six years old and running for my life. I sped into the men's bathroom, opened a stall door, and hid on the toilet seat. She can't get me in here, I told myself. She's not allowed in here. Two years earlier, she first had her way with me. My mother dressed me, a then four-year-old boy, up as a young hill tribe girl from the hills of northern Thailand, complete with a black mini dress and pink French vest. She applied makeup to my cheeks, blue eyeshadow, and a slathering red lipstick. She turned me into the cover model for some underground Asian transvestite child bride magazine. <laughs> As the boys teased me afterwards, my dad asked her why she had done that. And she said, because I know how to win. Indeed, I had won the fashion show. <laughs> Sympathy gets you a long way. Now she intended to impale my reputation at our temple's misspelled children's talent show, Tinkle Tinkle, Little Star. <laughs> I was going to sing a very simple and familiar Thai song called Nenami Pla. That means, in the water, you'll find fish. <laughs> it's a song every Thai kid learns, a song that cheers the strength of Thailand because it has fish. I liked this song, and there was even a little dance where you made your hands look like fish. Secretly, however, another song had really moved me. Every time the video played on MTV, I'd run to sit in front of the television set. In the first half of the video, a woman walks around backstage reminiscing about a time her mother encouraged her to perform in a talent show. In the second half, she emerges in a sparkling white sequence gown. Her makeup is perfect. Her hair is swept up with baby's breath. She glides around the stage and she looks over at her mother with a look in her eye that says, yes, mama, I've made it, but I couldn't have done it without you. And then during the final grand note, they run to embrace. This video was the greatest love of all. And this woman, my goddess, Whitney Houston. <laughs> Whitney! Now, like any boy growing up in the 80s, I sang the greatest love of all around the house constantly. <laughs> One day, my mother took notice. Oh, you like that song a lot now, don't you? What song is that? It's called The Greatest Love of All. And who sing it? I often had to educate my family on American culture. Whitney Houston, I told her. Oh, 
she said, that's very interesting song. Maybe, maybe you should sing it for the talent show. You think I should? Yes, go into the living room and practice right now. <laughs> I dug my toes into the shagreen carpeting and took a deep breath. I believe the children are future. Maybe the first verse went fine, but then I got to the part where Whitney starts her vocal gymnastics. <laughs> it did not go well. My usually stoic father put down his newspaper and glared at me. What he doing? <laughs> we just practicing, Daddy, my mom started. Don't worry. My sister, who was 10 at the time, ran into the room. Oh my God, why is Archie screaming? I don't think I should sing this song, I said. Mom, my sister continued, you cannot have Archie sing Whitney Houston. Little boys do not sing Whitney Houston, especially little boys who can't sing. This is worse than, dropping up, this is worse than dressing him up as a girl. Mommy, my dad said, just let him sing the Thai song. It's easy for him. Somehow my mom managed to look all three of us in the eyes at one time. Oh, Archie gonna sing the best love in the world. The best love in the world is the best song in the world. And Archie gonna win this competition again. My fate was sealed. I practiced the greatest love of all for the next two weeks. My father barricaded himself in the, his bedroom and my sister started calling me Chinky Houston. Blinded and deaf by her love for me, my mom became the Helen Keller of stage moms. <laughs> oh, your voice is so beautiful. It sounds like angels sing from the heaven. I had my doubts, though. I opened the liner notes of my Whitney cassette and decided I should write Whitney a letter. I begged her, asked her, pleaded for her advice. I stole a stamp from my mom's purse, dropped the letter in the mailbox by school, and waited. Whitney had a whole five days to get to me. <laughs> the day of the competition arrived and Whitney had not written back. I sat nervously in the audience. Kids did the Pledge of Allegiance, sang a little song, someone played the piano. It suddenly occurred to me that nobody else had the humongous task of covering Whitney Houston. <laughs> the room went from warm to hot in my boyhood tuxedo. I glanced around looking for an exit. I found one and bolted to the only safety zone I could think of. The click-clack of my mom's heels came across the bathroom floor. How silly of me to think my mother wouldn't enter the men's bathroom. <laughs> Archie! Ash! She opened my stall door and found me on the toilet seat with my knees to my chest. She grabbed me, but I clung onto the toilet roll dispenser. In those days, however, she was so much stronger. She dragged me kicking and screaming backstage while a roll of toilet paper unraveled behind us. <laughs> backstage, she held me in place like a prison guard until the MC announced my name. And now, Arch Jamjan will sing The Best Love in the World by Whitney Houston. <laughs> I refused to move. She pushed me, and I fell face first onto the stage. She picked me up, carried me sideways, and put me in front of the microphone. I waited for the music to begin. And then I waited some more. <laughs> because for the grand occasion this was supposed to be, my mom forgot one small detail. We had no music. I was going to sing the greatest love of all, a cappella. 
I looked into the audience where my sister was pointing and laughing at me. My father was looking down at the ground, and when I looked over at my mother, all I saw was this. Just sing! Just sing! Just sing! And that's when, that's when Miss Houston saved me. Whitney came through a back door and slowly glided down the aisle in that same sparkling white dress from the video. She came up to the stage and took my hand in hers. She smelled like springtime and fresh laundry. She knelt down beside me. I got your letter, Archie. Let's do this together. And we did. Whitney started, of course, but I joined in. And soon I was matching her note for note and gesture for gesture. When we were done, the audience erupted into cheers. My dad started a standing ovation, and my sister was shocked and horribly jealous. <laughs> and then I looked over at my mom, and I could see her applauding furiously while her eyes welled up with tears. And then we ran to embrace, just like Whitney did with her mom. Yes. No. <laughs> Maybe I just burst into tears and ran over to my mother. I didn't run over with the success of becoming the next Whitney Houston, but with the humiliation of failure. It's okay, Archie. Mommy still love you. And to this day, that's true. You see, my mom and I see my life very differently. She wishes I was a doctor with 2.5 kids, a wife from Thailand, and a house in Northbrook. I'm a gay waiter with a cat named Ladyboy. <laughs> Still, however, she's always there to applaud every success and embrace me when I burst into tears. And that's the best love in the world. Thank you. And this is for Bobby Christina. Thanks for joining us. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any podcast platform. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim Hunt. Curated by Archie Jamjun. Artistic director is David Fink. Stage manager, Brad Bailoff. Story collector, Ray Teresi. Audiovisual tech, Brian Smith. Podcast producer, Devlin Camp. That's me. I also have a queer history podcast if you're interested. It's called Queer Serial, serial with an S, not a C. It's a serialized story about the American gay and trans rights movement before Stonewall. You can find it wherever you're listening to this, and Pearl Hearts in it. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQIA community. Find out more at sidetrackchicago.com. You can find more information about Outspoken at sidetrackchicago.com slash outspokenchicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0.